1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in the tongue, it should be by two or three, or at the or it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is important for a woman to speak, or it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the thing which I write to you, the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these past few chapters. And as we close out today, the topic of spiritual gifts, I pray that it would be just begin, that just the beginning for us as we continue to try and be obedient to all that you've written. Try to pursue you and the experience of you through worshiping and learning from your word and sharing with one another. I pray that um, what we've learned won't get lost or forgotten, but would stay with us and be instructive to us as we change our format starting next week. Help us this morning as well to submit to the text. I appreciate Paul's warning about how it's important that we remember that these words aren't Paul's words, but they're your words. So help us to understand them and to desire you more than anything else, more than our feelings, more than our preferences. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the title is Worshiping Together Part 3. Um, there's a few things that I want to explain first, but I think obviously starting around verse 34, everyone's kind of interested in that section, but I, I want to make sure we can get through all of it. So um, starting in verse 26, you know, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble each one of the psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation? Uh, this is the verse that really sort of set me on the path of wanting to see more out of our times of worship together as I was reading ahead and looking at that. So um, in the past, when I've read this verse, I've talked to others about it, I've heard people say something like, oh, that's just descriptive and not prescriptive. Have any of you heard that term? Descriptive versus prescriptive? This is actually a really important um, Bible study tool to know. When you're reading the Bible, is the Bible just describing something or is it actually prescribing us to do something? So there are times in the Bible where something is described. And someone might say, well, therefore, look, we should all do this. And someone says, no, that wasn't a command. 
that wasn't prescribed, that was just described. So that's actually a very important thing to remember as you're reading through the Bible and you're looking at different passages. Is this verse just describing something that happened or is there some sort of imperative in here for me? Is it prescribing something for me? So I've heard this verse in the past said like, well, this is just describing what they did. That's not prescribing it. And so there is truth to that, that Paul isn't commanding here. But the more I read through it and prayed over it, the more I realized, but if Paul had any problem with this, this was the moment to correct it because he's been spending the entire book correcting them. And if he had a problem with them having worship in this way, where there's one person with a teaching, one person with a song, one person with a... If Paul had a problem with that kind of worship, this would have been the time to correct it, and he didn't. He says, this is what you all do, and then he just says, let all things be done with, uh, for edification. So that's why I started praying about, I, I think there should be an aspect of our worship that doesn't look so cessationist, that looks a little bit more interactive with God. That's really what kind of led me down that path. Um, but I also don't want to flip over to the other extreme because there are some people that say there's no place for formal teaching. We don't need pastors. And I've actually met with a guy who wants to plant a church. His idea for planting is just to sit around a table and everybody just kind of talk. And that's his idea of church with no formal time of, of, of teaching. And that is also too much of an extreme. Um, just to give you some examples of that. In Acts 14, verse 23, we find that the apostles appointed elders in every church they planted. Elders who would oversee and supervise and protect. But one of the main things elders did was teach. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Titus 1, verse 9 as well as many other verses, show us that the elders were expected to teach. And also, you remember Timothy, you might have remembered him from, from Acts. Timothy went with Paul on many of his missionary journeys. And there was a time when he stayed behind in Ephesus, and Paul continued on preaching other places. And then Paul wrote Timothy letters. So Timothy was left behind at this new church in Ephesus. They didn't really have a, a structure yet, so Timothy was kind of there, sort of, reminding them of the apostles' teaching. He was also there to appoint elders. But Paul says things throughout the entire book of Timothy like, prescribe and teach these things. Or until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. He says things like, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. I solemnly charge you, preach the word. And so Timothy was left behind in an authoritative way in Ephesus, and Paul said to him over and over again, teach, preach, preserve. And we also saw in, in Acts 20, uh, when Paul visited Troas, this is, I remember when I talked through Acts 20, it was like the first time we began to see the early church begin to take a real form. They were meeting weekly. Every week they were taking communion, and then Paul taught for hours. And so we know that in the early church, Emphasis was still given to a formal moment of teaching by the elders, unpacking the Bible and saying, and continuing in the apostles' doctrine, right? Acts 2.42, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in prayer, in the breaking of bread, in fellowship, those four things. So doctrine was a part of that. So we don't, we don't miss that. So even though we have this verse and it mentions that you assemble and one's got a psalm, one's got a teaching, one's got a revelation. That doesn't mean there was literally nobody guiding it, nobody leading it, nobody presiding over it. Um, uh, 
that word presiding comes from, at least the first time I read it was um, Justin Martyr, around 150 AD, was already speaking about a presiding elder, the elder that would preside over the church and still sort of make sure that like things were done orderly. There was still somebody that was instructing and teaching, even if these other things were going on. So um, yes, I want to do these things, but I think we have to have room for both, which is why the way I'm kind of planning right now is sort of 50-50, like you know, 30 minutes teaching and then 30 minutes time where others can share and others can pray and, and that sort of thing. So there definitely was an emphasis on teaching, but there's also an emphasis, I believe, on letting the Holy Spirit teach us and instruct us and guide us. So, And again, Paul says here, let all things be done for edification. So I just want us to keep that in mind over and over again as we, as we proceed to make these changes that we should be asking the question, how, how can I bless my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning? What gifts do I have that could bless them? All right, and then in verse 27, Paul begins to get into some specifics, and it might sound similar to what we've heard before, but it's kind of a bit different. 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, each one in turn. So here's some things to note about this whole section here. Uh, first, each in turn. That turn by itself and these passages by themselves, these sections of Scripture, really make it clear that this is one way where the more well, they call themselves charismatic, but where the more charismatic churches get it wrong is when everybody is doing their own thing, everyone's speaking in tongues at once, everyone's all over the place. Paul says here, let there be two, at most three, and each in turn. So Paul's idea here was if there was going to be someone speaking in tongues, there had to be an interpreter, but everyone else would stop what they were doing to listen to it and to listen to the interpretation. Then they would pray over it, and they would kind of, you know, maybe even discuss, is this something that God is saying to us? It wasn't like everybody was doing their own thing. Paul's very clear here, by two or at the most three, and each in turn. So that's the first thing, each in turn. The second thing to note here is that these gifts can be controlled. There are some who act as if when they get taken by the Spirit, they lose control, they don't know what's happening, and they lose the ability to control. And whatever happens, it was just God doing it, I had no control over it. And that isn't the way that it works. If we really lost control, then Paul would have no reason to instruct them, stop at three. If a fourth person began, stop at three. If you really couldn't control it, then you wouldn't be able to obey this. Or later on when he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, he's saying the same thing. That The spirit in you that's giving you a prophecy is subject to you in the sense that it's not going to take over you and you have no control over what you're saying or how long you speak or how much time you take up doing your gift. You have control over these things. It's not like you lose control. The third thing that I wanted to point out with these verses here, these couple of verses, is why two are at the most three? Why not ten? If all are taking turns, why not a hundred? Why does he stop at three? The only logical reason I can think of is that I think Paul is trying to be conscious of some time constraints. I think if you've been part of these kinds of worship services where it's people are participating and things are happening, it can go on for a very long time. And it can be great, you know, in certain circumstances to do that. I know some churches, you know, you show up at 10, you never know when you're going to leave. You might be at 5 o'clock still going because they never end. Paul, I think here, is kind of saying there is a chance that it might begin and people start going and going and going and going. And it's okay to put a break point in there and say, hey, we're going to stop here this week. Let's pick it up next week. 
That's the only reason why I can think of why Paul says two or at the most three instead of stopping at 10 or at 100 or at 200. I think he's just kind of saying, just be conscious of the time that's being taken up. Each in turn, you know, you take a turn, you take a turn. And then at some point there's going to be a break and that's going to, that's okay. The last thing I want to mention here is that silence apparently doesn't mean complete silence. So see in verse 28, if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent. Then it says, and let him speak to himself and to God. So I never have a problem with anybody who's speaking in tongues under their breath to themselves, as long as they're not obviously doing it as loud as possible to be heard. If there's no interpreter, but you still have that gift, Paul would say, be silent, but you can still do it to yourself. That doesn't mean literally do nothing. I have this gift. I can't use it because there's no interpreter. I'm just going to be silent. It's like, no, you, you can still under your breath, but don't do it loudly in the way we're going to all stop and listen and wait for an interpreter because there's no interpreter. But So silence doesn't mean, apparently, complete silence in that way. Okay, so Paul um, gets into some more kind of practical things here. Verse 29, let two or three, again, prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So it's not just tongues, even with the prophets, even with intelligible words. Two or three, Paul's saying, don't let it go on forever. You know, let one person share, one person can share, someone else can share. Don't go on forever. It's okay to put a break on it. But, you know, if, if someone else gets revelation, the first person should keep silent and let them speak. Shouldn't interject, shouldn't cross talk from the, from the 12 step uh, group. Um, one by one. And I like the humility here too, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Um, that's, let's keep that in mind that when we go into these times of, of worship after the teaching and one person's sharing, let's have a heart of humility. You know, Someone might say something that sounds different to you or you're not sure if it's doctrinally correct or so. And it's okay to kind of wonder and think that way, but also be open to the fact that you could learn something. God want to be changing you in some way. And the way someone else is worshiping, the way someone else is relating to God, I forgot to turn it off, darn it. The way somebody else is worshiping, the way someone else relates to God, it might be different than yours, but you could, you could learn something. And so it's, you know, let everyone who wants to share get a chance to share. Um, also, be conscious of how long you're taking because you know we're allotting 30 minutes to this, and if you share for 10 of those minutes, you're really taking up too much time. If you're taking 10 minutes to share something, you should you know pray about what you want to say, Find a way to say it in a concise way, then share it, and then give opportunity for others to respond or to share something else. So Paul's really kind of saying here, like, just each in turn, if someone else has got something to say, let them speak. Don't interrupt them. Don't just be waiting for your chance to say something after them. Everyone get a chance. Try to learn something from one another. And he ends in verse 33, this section saying, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And this is very important to remember. And he says it in specifically in the context of corporate worship. So our worship should reflect this. No matter how we're worshiping, no matter how we're experiencing God, it should reflect peace, not confusion. <coughs> All right, so in verse 34, um, Paul begins to talk about women keeping silent in the church. So this section about keeping silent in the church, it, it comes kind of as a shock. Because we've been going through for a couple of chapters talking about gifts and each person's got their gift and we're all excited to use it. And Paul has nowhere along the way mentioned that women weren't a part of any of that. He's just been talking in general about these gifts. And then suddenly he comes in here and says, women be silent in the church. 
And it kind of makes you step back and think, what's he talking about? So I want to share a couple of thoughts about this. And again, I know sometimes my teaching seems more teachy than preachy, which I think is fine. So I do feel like this is what my calling is, is more of a teacher than just a kind of bare bones application preacher. I like to explain things. I like you to understand scripture more than anything else. I want you to be left with a better understanding. And so I'm going to share my thoughts on what I think these verses mean and why. And again, the Holy Spirit is really the one in charge. And if you feel differently, feel free to keep studying this. Feel free to ask me questions on this. We can keep dialoguing about it. But here are my thoughts. The first thing that I want to remember is that these are not just Paul's ideas. In a lot of liberal theologies today, liberal churches, liberal theologians, liberal seminaries, they'll say things like, well, this is just Paul talking. This isn't really God talking. We can't get away with that, especially here, because Paul says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the things that I write to you are the Lord's commandment. So we can't get away with that here. The second thing is, I don't think Paul is literally saying that women are literally silent in every way in church. And I'm going to explain why I think that, because it seems to contradict what he's clearly saying. But here's why I think that. The first thing I've already said, we've gone through three chapters of deep study on spiritual gifts, and Paul never made it clear that he only intended this part to be read and obeyed by men. It was only applicable to men. So that seems strange to me. He spoke about tongues and prophecy and all these other gifts and about public worship and he never mentioned before that it was just about men. The second thing is we know from Joel 2 verse 28 that your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So gifts are for men and for women. More, um, more seriously though, Paul, even a few chapters back in 1 Corinthians 11 spoke about women praying publicly in worship. Do you remember that? We were there a few chapters ago. 1 Corinthians 11. He begins to say, Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. So Paul is talking about women who are praying and prophesying. And what's his contention with that? It's not that they're praying and prophesying. It's that their head was uncovered. And like I explained back then, that meant something specific in that culture. That was a very seductive thing. It meant you were free. It meant you weren't married. It meant you were a single woman looking for something. And the, the prostitutes would walk around with, with her head uncovered in those times. And so for a woman to do that while praying, he was basically saying, be chaste. Dress appropriately. Don't, don't dress like that while praying and prophesying. So he didn't even correct back then that there were women praying and prophesying. So I don't think Paul means this the way it sounds, the way he's writing it, based on what he said a few chapters ago. So given these reasons, these are my, this is my belief, my opinion, based on my study, given these reasons, I don't think Paul is literally saying that women must always be silent in church and never participate. I think Paul is addressing something specific that was going on in Corinth, and I think the clue is in verses 35 and 36. So in verse 35, he says, If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. That word ask in the Greek, just so you know, can also mean demand or interrogate. 
And it's translated that way many times in the Bible. That word in Greek, you can find it translated as interrogating or demanding. And so Paul could be using it that way here, and I think he is, especially given what he says next in verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you, or come to you only? So it's clear to me that Paul is dealing with an issue in the church where women in this time of participatory worship were, I think, cross-examining things in a way that were coming off too authoritative, too challenging, and coming off with this, this, this attitude as, as if the word of God had only come to them. They were the ones in control. They were the ones with the authority. That's what I think was happening. It was something to do with cross-examination. And so as you know, because we, we talked about this before, um, the issue of authority was a big issue in the early church. And I think it's still a big issue today also. I think that we can find that today many don't like the idea of husbands and fathers being the head of the house. Um, it sounds sexist. Um, it sounds, um, what's the other word? Uh, chauvinistic, yeah. Or they also like the idea of the pastoral ministry being a male-only role. Um, but the way I've taught it and the way that I see it in Scripture, I think the Bible is very clear about that. The fact that men and women should recognize and celebrate the differences in their roles in the home and that how we minister in the church shouldn't contradict that or cause confusion there. And I also believe it's very clear in the Bible that the pastoral role, the elder role, is a male-only role. In all the requirements you see, it's male-only. So I've thought about a lot of this in great detail um, when I taught through 1 Corinthians 11. So I'm not going to go into all those points again. If you want to do a refresher, you can listen back to 1 Corinthians 11. I went through, starting in Genesis, the whole thing. I explained kind of the whole, like, the, the marriage setup and how that in the church and everything. I did all that. I don't want to do it again. Um, but just briefly... Men and women have different roles in marriage and in church, but they're equal in value. And I think what was happening here, given all these points, I think Paul was noticing something in the church. The way the women are asking questions, it came across too challenging and authoritative in a way that it made it seem like even to their own husbands, they were sort of above them. And so he was kind of saying, no, ask your husband at home. Do that separately. Uh, don't do that here. Be silent. Um, Okay, so women have to get the prophecy. We've seen that Joel 2.28. Women did prophesy publicly and pray publicly. 1 Corinthians 11, we saw that. And given the fact the word can mean demand when he says ask, and given the fact that he says what, did the word of God come to you first given all those things, my best interpretation is that women were cross-examining or challenging things that were spoken in a way that seemed like they were taking on an authoritative role over men that undermined God's unique design for the roles of men and women. So that's how I understand that. Again, feel free to ask me afterwards about that or continue to dialogue with me. We can email about that. That's what I think. But I do think at the same time there are ways for men and women to participate in worship where this isn't a problem. And I think love is a big part of that, loving one another. I think humility is a big part of that. Um, I fully believe that God can use a man or a woman to have a prophetic word for the church, have a, a, a message for the church, have a song for the church as we're worshiping together. A woman wants to stand and share something. I think that's totally acceptable. I think what Paul was talking about is women that were challenging and questioning in a way that was like, now you report to me, you answer to me. I think this is wrong because this and, and that was sort of a, that went too far. See, the problem is in the Old Testament, 
What it meant to prophesy was, thus says the Lord, and you better obey it because God is only speaking through prophets in the Old Testament. That is the way he speaks in the Old Testament. You better listen. But that's not how prophecy is in the New Testament. It's not like that. It doesn't have that kind of authority. Prophecy in the New Testament we've seen over and over again is more about, if you think God's telling you something, go ahead and share it. Submit it for others to consider and to weigh and to pray about and you talk about it. It's not, it's not the same. And if we had that perspective and we're loving one another, we're having humility towards one another, then there's a way we can all share without it becoming a question of like, whose authority is being questioned right now, that sort of thing. And I also believe it's okay to ask questions. I think it's fine to ask a question. Um, you know, like when I'm teaching and I forget to mention a verse and someone says, what verse was that? It's not like only men can ask that. That doesn't make that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you just think logically about it, that's okay to ask that question. Or what did you mean when he said this? Or could you elaborate on that? I don't think it's a problem. Or even if we're we're sharing during worship and somebody says, I think God is saying this. Someone could say, Could you explain that more? Or, or what What did you say? I didn't didn't quite hear you. Or what did you mean by that? That isn't the same as cross examining in the middle of worship time, and you know, like that sort of thing. So I think there's totally a way we can do this. Men and women, without contradicting this section here and without causing any kind of confusion about authority roles and all that kind of stuff. And I'll talk a bit more about that during our, our final 30 minutes. Um, so these last two verses, Therefore, brethren, he's kind of summarizing here, Desire earnestly to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And like I've said, prophecy here kind of encompasses anything that God is wanting to speak to us as he interacts with us during worship. You know, it could be like as we're singing a song, you feel led to read something in the Bible and you're suddenly reading over in like John and you're like, you know, I read this verse and this really spoke to me and maybe it'll speak to you too. And you kind of share it. That could be, that could be prophetic. Or I was praying for somebody and I've got this image in my head and I just wanted to share it with you all. That can be prophetic. Or you can say, I was praying, I think God is telling our church this. That's also prophetic. Anything you want to share that God might be speaking to you could be prophetic. But again, properly and orderly, not in confusion. So with that, we'll pray, and then we'll go into the next 30 minutes. Thanks, um, Father, again for this chapter and for chapters 12, 13, and 14. I thank you for how it's, it's caused me to have to reshape some of my thinking. I think that it's been a good reminder for me to stay humble and to stay open to learning. I pray, like I prayed before, that you'd continue to guide us and lead us, help us to, to sense our dependence on the Holy Spirit in all things throughout the week and on Sundays. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.